This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Hello, and welcome to the Scholarly Podcast. My name is Dr. Stephanie Maximus, and today I'll be discussing a really exciting and interesting paper with our guest today, Dr. Jennifer Benjamin, and the name of her paper is Virtual Deliberate Practice Module for Tracheostomy Change Training, an Application of Educational Design Research. Dr. Benjamin is an assistant professor in academic general pediatrics and the Department of Education, Innovation, and Technology at the Baylor College of Medicine and Texas Children's Hospital in Houston, Texas. She's also the director for technology at the Baylor Center for Research, Innovation, and Scholarship in Medical Education, where she focuses on education of residents who care for pediatric patients with complex needs. And finally, she's also the co-director of the Faculty College, which is a one-year educational program for pediatric health professions to serve as a pathway to education scholarship and leadership. So Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. So just to give a little bit of background to our listeners, I wanted to paint a little bit of the background picture, thinking about your project, which is really focused on hands-on skill development, not in an not in person. And so pandemic aside, there has been an increasing need to enhance those opportunities for these types of hands-on skills. Can you tell us a little bit about what were some of the these background challenges that maybe promoted you to start to think about developing a project like this? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. I think the first challenge is definitely access to simulation facilities. So having access to simulation centers. So we definitely found the need to have something that's asynchronous that our residents could access. Another one that I came across, so we did the same effort as an in-person teaching that we did once a month. And every time we would actually miss out on residents that either were starting their night shift or the ones that finished their night shift. So we Definitely wanted something that's asynchronous, that residents can perhaps complete on their own, something that's accessible anywhere they are. Having this as an asynchronous module definitely helped improve the access for our residents. Another big challenge that we tried addressing was just the whole having protected time to practice and to keep, you know, mastering skills and not having that opportunity or not having an educator that's with you that that is actually giving you feedback as you're practicing. So those were kind of some of the challenges that we already faced with the previous approach to teaching trek skills. The pandemic just spearheaded some of these efforts for us. We just had to come up really quickly with a solution that addressed and with the pandemic too, we also had in-person restrictions. We had restrictions to the number of learners that ha- that can be in the sim center. So yeah, it's it's all a there was there was quite a few challenges already. I'm glad we could come up with something that was asynchronous and easily accessible. Yeah, I love that you focus on enhancing access on so many different levels. So you mentioned 
maybe places don't have large simulation centers, or maybe the simulation center is, you know, remote from where people's clinical practice is. And so it makes it hard for trainees to reach there. Maybe they have scheduling or logistical issues that make it hard for them to join the sessions that are predetermined and they're interested or they need to enhance those skills. And then, as you mentioned, the protected time to actually be able to spend doing procedural training over and over and over again to actually reach a level of, of competence or better yet mastery that might vary from trainee to trainee, right? Some people get it in a short period of time. Others need a much longer period of time to get it. And most people's schedules don't, don't permit for that. So it sounds like developing a program like this that was asynchronous was really valuable for, for not only your residents, but is probably applicable to most educational settings. I think that would resonate with a lot of people. Absolutely. And I think another, another aspect as well that I came across was, was the need to have education not get in the way of patient care. I remember we used to do these simulations in the first week of their rotation in the transitional ICU. And these are first year residents. They are really worried about these, this patient population because it's, it's high equity, trek vent dependent kids, very medically fragile. And I still remember this interaction I had with a learner that said, I need to put my TPN orders before noon. Do I do your SIM or do I get my TPN orders done? And I remember actually going back and saying, this is wrong. We shouldn't be doing education that gets in the way of patient care, but we, sh we should be thoughtful with how we time it. So we actually timed our simulation sessions to be towards the end of the transitional ICU uh, rotation because we said, you know, they get a fair amount of bedside teaching, but then, you know, if we if they get exposed to the asynchronous portion right at the beginning, and then they come and practice with us towards the end, then it gives them the time to actually kind of absorb the work environment they're in. So I think it's it's also essential to be thoughtful on the on where your learners are at. Because if they're so anxious about the patient care aspect, how are they actually going to learn? So we actually enrolled star residents who are our second year residents who rotate to hold their pages when they came in for the sim, just to relieve them of that extra stress that they had. Yeah, I think it's a great point that there are so many competing interests. And yeah, I mean, ultimately patient care does have to come first and we want to teach our trainees that that's the case. And yet they do need to learn along the way and how do you balance those two? And typically simulation and hands-on skills training has been something where you yeah have to pull them usually from a clinical rotation in order to actually get them in place with your instructor whose schedule also is booked. And so, yeah, finding ways to work around that I think is, is complex. And that's why I thought that this was such an interesting way to navigate a little bit. Thank you. So tell me a little bit more about what prompted you to, to pursue a curriculum focused specifically on tracheostomy management. And I just want to point out for our listeners, we often don't have that many, um, projects that we focus on that is based in pediatrics. So I really wanted to highlight this particular paper for that purpose and, and give a little bit of a nod to our pediatric 
colleagues. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about, you know, what was the sense of urgency around doing this pediatric tracheostomy change module? Yeah, so one of the main things with trach emergencies are how they are high stakes, but low incidence in terms of the occurrence of them. The setup in text children's is that our patients who are medically complex have their, are usually admitted to the transitional ICU. And in the transitional ICU, the first-line caregivers are our interns. And most of these patients have their care in the complex care clinic. And so you have parents that are trained before they leave with their child with the tracheostomy. And then you have interns who have not come across these patients or actually haven't been trained specifically for the needs of this population. So, and of course, we all know that each patient has a trick for a reason. And a trick dislodgement is like a life and death scenario. And so we really wanted to make our interns comfortable around these patients. I think that was the general essence of it. And I think another common behavior or pattern that we see with our trainees when they're called coded to a room, the first thing they do is stand at the end of the bed and give orders to the nurses. We actually wanted our interns to actually go right next to the patient and know what to examine, what to look for. So say for a trek emergency, we wanted them to say, okay, is the tie, is the trek tie actually appropriate? Is it is it tight enough or is it too loose? Can I hear breath sounds? Is this a dislodgement? Is this an obstruction? You know, so we wanted them to distinguish. So we came with a very simple four step to identify a trek emergency. But I think the essence of it is for them to be comfortable enough to go right next to the patient and handle a trick if need be. And as and I often tell them and I teach them, you may be that first person that gets to the room and you need to know what to do. We don't want you being, you know, caught off guard. So it was almost like making them comfortable, making them improving their comfort level. And a lot of patient care with this population is more comfort level around them. And I think we need more efforts along these lines. So that's why we kind of prioritize TREK. We want to teach them about G-tubes as well. But I think TREK kind of holds a little bit more importance because of the equity and the nature of the emergencies. And we never want our trainees to be in that position where they know less than a parent knows, right? Because that doesn't lend itself to a good trusting doctor-patient relationship, especially on the on the floors. That's you want them, you want to enable them with enough knowledge, skills to be able to troubleshoot with the parent. So. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you want to build their confidence and their competence simultaneously so that they absolutely can have that sense of empowerment and not feel just scared and not invested absolutely in. yeah like the whole shell shock moment of not knowing what to do so actually teaching them to look at trends and saturations right so during the sim often we would 
just drop the sat gradually. And if they didn't pick up on it soon enough, that's the teaching lesson, right? So it's kind of teaching them from the get-go just to do the ABCs, but doing it very systematically. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and breaking down breaking down something that seems really complex into much more manageable mm -hmm. bite-sized pieces for a novice learner. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, that makes sense. And I appreciate the sort of focus on high risk or high stakes, low incidence type events. And, and we've seen other papers and projects come out about how do we train, right? How do we train different levels of learners for things that they may not even really encounter in the course of their training, but need to be prepared to do once they're actually practicing independently, which is challenging, but simulation is definitely a tried and true way to navigate that. Absolutely. And I think Sim also lets them make mistakes mm -hmm. it at no consequences, right? Like you're okay making those mistakes in the Sim Center than you are trying to do that first time in a real patient encounter, mm -hmm. right? So that is what making that whole environment very safe. Like our Sim assessments are independent of the rotation assessments. So that's the first thing we assure when they come into the sim center, we just say, none of this is going to matter outside of this. This is for your learning, right? So making sure that they have that safe environment where they can, they can make their mistakes, they can have fast fails, but learn from it mm -hmm. and improve. Yeah. So taking something that in real life is really high stakes and then making it extremely low stakes to yeah. lower the barrier to, to taking risks and thinking through things and being willing to make mistakes and things like that makes total sense. What was in place before this curriculum for your trainees? So before we did the virtual asynchronous module, we would go to the to the transitional ICU. We have a sim center in the ICU and uh, we would do this, the routine track change. So we would have as many residents as we can get on the rotation. And there were three of us instructors and we would make, we would demo them the routine trick change. We would ask each of them to repeat it and to give feedback to each other. And then we also video recorded them applying what we just taught with the routine trick change in a sim scenario. And we kind of did that twice a month to try and, you know, get as many residents not to miss anyone so that almost every resident that went through the ICU would get the sim training but of course that meant three of us instructors at least four or five residents so that's like seven learners in that room with COVID of course all of that did not could not be done the way it was and and the other thing we also noticed with that older system was us as instructors, we had clinical duties, so people would want to go back to their clinics. So we can only sustain that for so long to keep doing the same effort. So I think the need to identify new people that want to be engaged, actually building a team of instructors, right? So having a pool of people that you can tap on that actually want to get credit for their teaching hours and whatnot. So definitely incentivizing educational efforts of faculty, I think, is another aspect that we have to consider and look at. 
Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a major challenge in many places and some places don't have necessarily core teaching faculty who are readily available to, to invest that amount of time, even if they want to, right? Because of, again, competing clinical or, or research interests and things like that. So yeah, I, I hear you with the, the need to innovate and come up with a program that was going to be sustainable over the long haul with changes in faculty and demands, clinical demands and things like that. So I want to hear more about sort of the educational pedagogy that went into designing this program. The foundational theory for this curriculum that you talk about is deliberate practice, and many of our listeners will be very familiar with this concept. But I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about deliberate practice and maybe give us some specific examples from your curriculum's content. Absolutely. So we, deliberate practice was actually defined by Ericsson. And what it involves is this error-focused, goal-oriented, repetitive practice. So the ability to repeat a technique or a skill till you perfect it. So it's not so much about, did I pass the sim or did I not pass the sim? It's knowing how actually to do the procedure. So the process, so paying attention to the process than the outcome. And then the other aspect of deliberate practice is the ability to incorporate feedback from experts. So the experts giving feedback immediately to the learner and the ability of the learner to then apply that feedback and improve their technique. And so we actually looked at the example of TikTok and it's like doing a complex TikTok dance. So you look at a complex dance and you go, whoa, I can't quite do that. But then if you slowed it down, if you taught them the footwork and you had a separate footwork tutorial that does it in slow motion, you keep practicing the the dance routine in slow motion and then you keep speeding up to make it. Now then also you add the hand motions or whatever it is. So that is, and we also thought it's kind of cool to use that type of effort for our millennial learners because they do a lot more TikTok and Instagram than than someone like me. And so we wanted to apply the TikTok principles to teaching. In fact, my introductory video says, it's like uploading your TikTok video. And <laughs> I've often heard people chuckle listening to it. Oh, I've, I've heard med students come and tell me, oh, Dr. Benjamin, that was pretty cool. <laughs> that you said that. So I think they want us to form those bridges with them. And the more we actually get feedback, in fact, most of my pilots were very young, you know, med students, people still training, but very tech savvy, you know, a lot more advanced in tech than I am. And the feedback they give is so valuable in the iterative process. So it doesn't feel like another thing that they have to do. But actually, it's fun. It's fun for them to learn to do it. And often there's a lot of jokes in the Sim Center too. I just tell them, hey, you're going to use this Osmo. It's going to record a video of you doing the procedure. I promise not to post it on Facebook and make you famous. <laughs> it's just for research purposes. And often they are, you know, it kind of eliminates the whole stress of, gosh, they are recording a video of me doing a procedure. It's not so much for 
anyone to feel judged by it, but more for them to be open to feedback on it and to get objectively assessed. It sounds like you create a very welcoming learning environment for them to, again, be willing to make mistakes and to get useful critical feedback so that they can move to the next phase of their training. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and I think for any sim, that psychological safety is like so crucial mm -hmm. because if they felt any amount of punitive type of vibes, then it kind of shuts off the creativity and learning that can happen if they're more comfortable with Mm -hmm. learning. Yeah. So I appreciate that. Yeah. You, you recognize, you've recognized that the current learners are super tech savvy. They're engaged with social media and how can we harness that interest and familiarity to use it for an educational purpose? Use, Mm -hmm. use the powers for good, I guess. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. So now tell us then about the coaching and interactive components that fed, that kind of complemented the asynchronous curriculum. Uh, And again, you're really harnessing the power of the sort of social media type environment with this. Like, tell me how this practically worked, because what I understood from it was that you have videos of the procedure that, like you said, it can be slowed down and broken down into its component parts for the purposes of the learner understanding each piece, as opposed to being overwhelmed with a really complex process. Then how did the coaching and interactivity come into play? Absolutely. So voice that's why we picked VoiceThread to allow for the coaching and the interactivity to happen even before they came into the sim center. So VoiceThread allows them to ask questions, to post comments, to to actually directly chat with me. Now, every group that came in could see what's going on between the educator and the learner. Like, so that that helps. So that that is the social media aspect, right? So for them to just say, Dr. Benjamin, this part was still not clear, right? You know, those those kind of things. So them being able to directly ask questions. And I think the one aspect that has to be thought through with any virtual teaching is the engagement from the educator. So most people, so we ask them to actually complete this in the first week of their TQ rotation, just so they can be comfortable around patients with tricks. But guess when they all do it? They literally do it the day before they have the sim, and or two days before. Or the real motivated learners would perhaps do it a week before. The good thing about VoiceThread is that it would alert me on my email. So it's an automated, auto-generated email that I get sent saying, hey, people are busy with your VoiceThread module, and you received a comment or you received a question. So I can go back in and immediately answer back. So I would actually tell them, so if their deadline is say on the Tuesdays when we usually do that sims, I would tell them, hey, submit it by Sunday. So I can actually go through what you've done. I can go through your narration and I actually give you feedback. And my feedback was scripted for the generic portions, but then I always picked things that were specific to what they did. So although you give them 
that there is no harm in actually giving them a scripted version of these are the things you ought to remember. But then it's also make it personal. Pick on a couple things they did well, a couple things you noticed that they actually should do better. And so by the time they came to the Sim Center, they've already had feedback. They've already had, you know, personal feedback on things that they can improve on. So it's almost like setting them up for success so they don't feel overwhelmed with trying to do the procedure and being recorded while doing the procedure because that can be a little scary as a learner to say, oh, someone's going to video record you doing X procedure, which you've never, and you've never handled this instrument before. You've never done that before. So, yeah, that is that is how the, so we actually went out to create this as a completely asynchronous module. And then we recognized that having someone in there with them when they did the in-person component was very valuable. And so there's nothing that can replace that. There's nothing that can replace that synchronous, real-time, immediate feedback component that, that an educator can give them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So did you find that they, you know, in spite of them leaving things till kind of almost the last minute, <laughs> did you find, were they able to upload their videos of themselves doing it, get the feedback from you, and then re- was the goal for them to redo it at, with the feedback and upload again so that you can have this kind of like back and forth gradual improvement? So it was, they were required to narrate to someone doing the procedure. So the video recording happened after their in-person simulation. And so, yes, it would be, it would be fantastic they actually went back and narrated again. I'm just going to be a realist and say that if we managed to get them to narrate once and submit it once and actually read through the feedback they received, we won, you know? Yeah. So I think the key was to not, to give them a deadline that's well before when they have to come for them and say, hey, unless you finish that, you can't really come and practice. And they were more than willing to just learn because it was so scary to take care of these kids. But it was, again, for them to make time as well to learn. So often, you know, I have people that said, actually, I did that over my night shift. It was a little quiet and I could submit it over the night shift. So, yeah, I think, I think allowing them, having clear expectations, right? So... I would actually tell them, hey, if you didn't submit, we can also have you come and practice because we want people that care, that care to do this and produce modules. So having some kind of consequences, but not, not so much that it feels like a punishment, but more because we want them to have the buy-in. Yeah, and you want them to have invested enough to get the most out of their simulation Absolutely. or in person with you. That makes Absolutely. sense to me. How, tell me about also this concept that you talked about in your paper, the community of inquiry framework. Mm -hmm. So we used deliberate practice as our overarching theme, but the COI framework is more for the virtual environment itself. So it's a more global 
theory for virtual environment and learning environments. And deliberate practice kind of is part of the COI. So it has three different components. It has teaching presence, cognitive presence, and social presence. So teaching presence is how you as the educator plan how you would teach. So that kind of informs the other two processes. So making sure that you set the stage, if you will, for your learners to feel, oh, this is what I'm going to do with this module. So cognitive presence is more the theories that you're going to use. In our case, it was the Peyton and Walker four-step and then the deliberate practice theories that you used. And the social presence is kind of making them feel that they can openly communicate, they can learn from each other, they can chat with each other, they can post comments, they can post questions, but it feels like a very open, safe environment for them to be able to talk through how the whole process is going. So yeah, we, we used COI more as a overarching framework to set the tone for how the virtual environment and the virtual space is gonna look like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it seems like setting the, the tone and the learning environment in the virtual space has a different set of considerations than in person when, where you can have this, you know, the body language and the, you know, small jokes here and there and kind of kind That's of disarm right. them and put them at ease. Whereas in the virtual environment, it seems like it takes a little bit of a different type of investment. It does. So I think, I think the natural rapport that happens, the natural interactions that happen actually have to be planned and thought through when you're trying to do what is in person virtually. So you actually plan on, you know, your introductions, you plan on congratulating them when they've done. So we have these animated videos that will do a little clap to say, well done on doing your step one or well done on finishing step two, that kind of thing. So it's, it's having those fun elements added in but you need to think through them. You need to plan through them. So I think that's one of the things I learned about uh, virtual teaching in general. It's kind of planning the other organic things that happen almost naturally in in-person meetings. You need to kind of, you know, virtually plan it out if you're trying to do it in an online environment. Mm, that's good advice for sure. Because I think there's a lot of just assumptions that we make about what can be translated to the to the virtual environment. But it sounds like, yeah, you have to actually think through how is this going to land and how am I going to make up for, like you mentioned, those organic moments of, of support and connection that you might more easily have in person that takes a little bit more forethought mm -hmm. in a virtual space. So it sounds like a lot of the, so the asynchronous portion of the curriculum almost served in a way as a, almost like a flipped classroom type thing. Like they were doing some of this pre-work and then they would come and do the simulation in person with you. How did you find that, that asynchronous portion informed or changed or impacted the, their performance or what they took from the in-person simulation in your, you know, perspective, having done whole, whole trainings in person and then shifting to this I imagine that there was different level of of maybe competence or engagement or level of questioning that the trainees brought with them to the in-person component. Yeah, 
it was actually very learner-centered to do it through the flipped approach, to actually do it with the asynchronous followed by, and um, a lot of followed by the in-person. I, I still remember people coming to, you know, observe how we did this and just being blown away with, wow, if you've not taught them anything till now, you've literally, they've literally done all those learning by themselves. So they actually came in with very valid questions with, Dr. Benjamin, this is a two-person technique, and I'm supposed to do it one person. So how do I secure the trick while I tie it? You know, so it was very valid, deep questions, as opposed to this is how the trick looks. This is a cuffed versus this is an uncuffed. So they kind of learned the basics, and I think it's it's pretty valuable I think they learned, we did have to work on the buy-in portion, but once they started doing the process, they found that they learned more from just doing the virtual module, completing that before coming in. They found it valuable. And they also told us, we love that we can just apply directly what we learned during the simulation. So we didn't publish on that. We didn't publish on the, in the ATS Scholar publication, we only talked about the trick change. Um, but the ability to directly apply what they learned to an, a trick emergency scenario, I think was very meaningful. So I think it's, it's work to get them to buy in and to do that initial portion, but I think with enough coaxing, that does happen. And uh, another trend we saw as well was in the beginning of their residency is the best time to catch them with the learning because the, they are very anxious about patients. I think they get comfortable at the So perhaps looking at design, if I were to do this differently, I would say, actually, let's plan a sim half day where everyone comes and does the sim in the beginning of the year, right? And then perhaps you can look at retention for people that come 10 months later from the sim date. Because the buy-in is definitely a lot, lot better beginning of intern year than towards the end of intern year. Yeah, I, I believe that for sure. And just different, different levels people's of sense of competence that may not totally track with what they Absolutely. actually are capable of doing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you mentioned before sort of the, the challenge of getting your faculty to be able to have the time and the space to do some of this training. So how do you think the time and energy commitment, you know, shifted for your faculty who were also serving some of them as, as raiders in the in the asynchronous virtual space and others maybe, or maybe it was the same group were serving as in-person coaches during the simulation. And do you have a, did you get any feedback from, from your, you know, colleagues on the impact of this curriculum, both on, for them in terms of their time, but also what they observed in the trainees? They had a lot of enthusiasm because we sold it as TikTok style teaching. So for faculty, it was important to kind of identify people that can do. So we we recruited our fellows because we want to observe them teaching. We want 
for their 360 eval, they want to be observed to be teaching. So I think the key was building a group, building sustainability in the efforts. So that's the first thing I learned with, you know, using the same facilitators, the same three, four facilitators when we did it in person, as opposed to the virtual style. So building a group where different people can rotate, but do the, do the training just to, just to tell them how to use the Osmo. Another finer detail is things like anything to do with tech have different ways of teaching it. So we had an animated video. We also had a very simplified step-by-step. This is how you connect the Osmo type of thing right next to the Osmo, the video recorder for in-person. So it was kind of getting the faculty used to the different technologies that we used in this module. So, you know, trying, and most of, most of it did not need, so picking the tech as well, you want something that's easy for most people to use. It's not hard. It doesn't have the hidden complexity of, oh, it doesn't do this because you need to go fix this other thing. And there's six different steps. By the time you've done the second step, you've lost them. So you want something that's easy to set up, easy to do. So yeah, I think for us, it was more building a team of people that were willing to do it. And once you have a bunch of fellows that are going to do it, it's kind of become the thing for them to say, oh, we do it. Would you like to also do it? So their their successors after them also take on. We kind of involved different groups. We involved the TQ group. We involved GenPeds. We involved inpatient hospital medicine team. So building building your workforce so you have a little bit of rotation, but then it also allows for people to just avoid burnout. So you're not you're not asking the same folks to do it every time. Yeah, it sounds like you had good success building your building your crew of people to, yes. to carry the project yes. forward. So now tell us about the main findings and what you measured. Mm-hmm. So we used the system usability scale. So the system usability scale is more of an industrial standard assessment that's out there for anything related to technology. And it basically has alternating questions of how easy the tech is to use. So it was for learners to tell us how useful and easy it was to go through the module. We also included some self-efficacy questions of pre-post before the module. I was comfortable with X things. So some of the questions were listing critical steps, performing critical steps, how comfortable they were. So we kind of used a Likert scale. So one of the things that I would remind them to avoid survey bias when they completed the system SUS assessment was to tell them, hey, don't just pick a column and go through it. Read every question. So I had to, to remind them when they did the system usability. So we had the SUS scale. We used the survey questions about pre-post. And then we did scoring of the videos itself. So a couple of us who were involved in the process actually did the scoring initially. We don't do it every time. We kind of did it for the manuscript to actually go through 
was this actually a good enough system? Like take away the objectivity, but you know, no, take away the subjective element, but actually be a little more objective by scoring. So we took the steps of trick change. We listed what are essential steps, and then we scored them to see if there was inter-rate reliability between. And we actually found that they had pretty significant statistically different scores with the pre-post. With our system usability, we had a wide range of standard deviations. And some of it was that whole survey bias where they picked a column and just went through number three the whole way through. So we think some of it was that. We also took into account the fact that people were, you know, pretty naive to the system when they started doing it. And so some Scores initially were on the lower side, but we still, on average, scored above 68, I think, I believe is the, is the cutoff for the SUS. And most of our learners had a higher score than that. And then with the video assessments, we did find good inter-rater reliability between the two raters. So, yeah, we're quite, we're quite happy with, with that initial assessment. So none of this is super rigorous. It's more a iterative process using design-based research to come up with a solution to common problems that a lot of people face for teaching procedural skills. Yeah. So where have you gone with this now? You know, is this project still, does this curriculum look the same at this point or have you made adjustments to it? Have you built other asynchronous modules? Yeah, so we definitely want to use this to teach other skills. So you can use it for teaching communication skills. You can teach it for, you know, LP, for any procedural skills that you can think of, right, for intubations. So we're building those modules as we speak. Initially, we built it, like I mentioned earlier, to be completely asynchronous. But we've changed it to include a little bit more synchronous effort. So we actually allow, I let the learners come and practice, do whatever they want with, you know, familiarizing themselves with the equipment, with how tricks look, with how the obturator and trick handling the trick. So familiarizing themselves. So actually allowing flexibility in the synchronous portion has definitely helped. Although ideal, idealistically, we said, you know, let's make it completely asynchronous. Let's actually see. And then we took a step back and said, you know what? Although this is great, unless you have a good synchronous portion to back it up, you can't quite get them to to uh, master the skills as much as you want them to. So we actually have that emphasis for that in-person instructor to be there. I also now allow for residents to give feedback to each other, you know, to for them to learn from each other and also to kind of, so I pair them. It used to be that I allowed them to only come one at a time, but now we've used, we kind of pair them together so one person can give feedback and then while the other person does, they can give them feedback type thing. Yeah, so it's, it's more of a micro-learning. We definitely want to use this as we venture into VR for teaching, 
you know, allow for that, uh, because that's one of the things that we came across with the screen-based prototype, that they couldn't really, although they watched it, they couldn't practice it mm -hmm. asynchronously. Mm -hmm. so, but virtual reality, extended reality will let them do that practicing before they come to do an in-person. So we are kind of exploring those methods. As That's we cool. I look forward to your VR module. That would be really amazing. <laughs> and that would make it in some ways more, even more accessible to folks in different locations and things like that too. Absolutely, absolutely. Because it'll allow them to, to actually learn from, as long as they have a headset, to learn from where they are you know, and not even have to come to this incentive. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the future is the use of haptic, you know, sensory elements as well. So it actually feels like you're really intubating, you're really inserting a trick in a patient because you get that haptic feedback with how you're doing the procedure. And if it's all in the extended reality environment, they can actually get direct feedback if it's all programmed. Mm -hmm. They can have direct feedback with the program telling them, uh-oh, oh, try again, you know, type of thing, rather than um, them waiting for me to email them back with with what they did. So yeah. I know. A, lot, a lot to explore into and expand. Yeah. Uh, I like that you um, modified what you were originally doing. You know, you've shifted to a hybrid model as opposed to completely asynchronous and incorporated the residents being able to give each other feedback, which I think even goes back to the whole social media aspect of it, being able to comment on each other's things. And I think you learn when you give feedback also to your to your peers. So I love that it's evolving over time. Any, like, major... I, think, I think one of the things, again, that I saw them doing is once they watched their peer do it, it enabled them to do it. Mm. You know, once they watched their peer do a trick change, we kind of say, okay, they did one, they were the first one to go. We want you to do it even better than them, right? So the person that does it somewhere towards the end would do the perfect trick change because they've watched the mistakes that the other ones did. So VR actually would allow for that to happen like pretty much just like how we had it in person before, it would allow for them to learn as a group in the virtual environment. Yeah. In our last closing minutes, any any advice that you would give to other educators who are interested in creating similar types of curricula um, or building multimedia content with levels of interactivity like you experienced here? I think the one thing that I would say is explore, explore, ask people, listen to your learners and keep adapting, keep improving. Because that's the one thing I took away from this experience. You know, actually listening to your residents, listening to your to your learners is so crucial in the process, especially with tech. Mm -hmm. And I think coming up with something that's fairly simple to use, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be boring. None of the technologies we used needed a lot of dollars to start the process. We created the videos ourselves. VoiceThread 
institution had a subscription to VoiceThread. So solutions don't need, you know, half a million dollars invested to happen. So finding a fairly simple technology and two, just listening to your learners, making it as learner-centered as possible, I think are kind of my two takeaways. No, that's helpful. I mean, it, the your learners were talking about learning dance moves on TikTok. So <laughs> this is how we ended up here. Hopefully you've got some dance moves recorded as a group also. <laughs> yeah, we would often use a couple of dance videos as an intro to how we taught. We call this module beta, virtual deliberate practice module. And so we we would we would often show the the TikTok dance moves to, to show them why is it that you're doing it. Mm -hmm. You know, and as, as long as people got oriented to what it is they were doing, mm -hmm. they kind of they kind of got hooked onto it. Yeah. Well maybe you need some uh I appreciated the music that you had in the background of of the videos too. So <laughs> you can pair that with the dance, with the dance videos also. <laughs> Dr. Benjamin, thank you so much for sharing with me about the evolution of this project. And I really look forward to, you know, next iterations of it, as well as, you know, all this cutting edge augmented reality VR type cool technology that you were alluding to that hopefully we'll see over the course of our careers develop. Um, and thank you all to all of our listeners uh, listening to this week's episode of Scholarly. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. To listen to more episodes and see show notes from today's discussion, you can visit our webpage at atsjournals.org backslash scholarly. Thank you again for listening and have a great day.